seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. It all starts in your head. The desire to get something to eat, hit up a friend, go to bed, start a project, read a book, or listen to your favorite podcast. Whatever it might be, before it becomes an action, it starts as an idea. Once upon a time, I had a big idea. I wanted to become a wizard. I was very excited by this idea. I thought about it all the time, but I struggled to get it out of my head and into the world. Where did I even begin? Grow a beard? Come up with a wizard name? Carve a staff? Acquire some robes? It all felt very overwhelming. I was on a work trip in Portland, Oregon, when an ad for a local hypnotist popped up on my phone. I'd been interested in hypnosis for ages, but never been to see a hypnotist in person. Again, everything starts with an idea. And the idea that came to me like a bolt of lightning was, what if I asked this hypnotist to help me make this wizard idea real? So I called him up, and he was a bit confused by what I was after. No, I don't need help with weight loss, smoking, or depression. I've just got a big old idea in my brain, and I could use a hand in getting it out. He agreed to give it a shot, and the appointment was set. The hypnosis session was fine. I certainly went into trance, and that was pretty cool, but I didn't have any aha moments, and at the end of the session, I felt no closer to becoming a wizard than when I started. But on my way out the door, I asked the hypnotist a question, that would change my life forever. I said, hey, I'm interested in hypnosis, but I've been having trouble Googling any good information because so much of what you find online is spam and scams. Are there any resources you'd recommend? Without missing a beat, he said, hypnosisdownloads.com. That's it, I asked. That's all you need, he said. When I got back from my work trip, I checked out hypnosisdownloads.com. There were thousands of hypnosis tapes for every imaginable condition. But one in particular caught my eye. Create your own reality. The description was precisely what I'd been looking for, and I bought the tape on the spot. Hypnosis Downloads uses a technique called conversational hypnosis. Their tapes begin with a man in a soothing British accent describing the situation, the relevant research, and a few conscious strategies one can employ before the language begins to slow down and the speaker seems to be asking questions in a very strange way that leads your mind to wander off, listening but not listening, until suddenly he's reorienting you to the room and instructing you to open your eyes, feeling refreshed and wide awake. The Create Your Own Reality tape had a very simple premise. We can't control everything in the world and thinking we control the weather or traffic lights with our mind is an indicator of mental illness. 
but we are also not helpless victims. We can make changes to our environment, reorganizing our room so it's easier to be creative, choosing to hang out with more positive people, or just getting a potted plant to brighten up our living space. And when we set our mind to making these changes, slowly but surely, we can drastically alter the reality around us. I listened to that tape over and over and over. I could quote it backwards and forwards. I dreamed about a new reality, slightly better than the one I was in then, a brave new reality where I lived my life as a wizard. And then one day, maybe a year and a half later, I found myself sitting on the subway, realizing I was in the reality I'd been dreaming about. I was now the wizard I wanted to become. Since then, the interplay between wizardry and hypnosis has grown to define my life. I'm now not only America's number one wizard, but I also earn a living as a professional hypnotherapist. You can even book a session with me at changeyourmindky.com. It's been a long journey, but ever since I downloaded that first tape, hypnosisdownloads.com has been a constant companion. I've used their materials to become a better public speaker, deal with stress, improve my writing, get more focused, and even become a better hypnotist. So, it is my great honor and privilege today to have Mark Terrell, founder and director of hypnosisdownloads.com and its parent company, Uncommon Knowledge, join our little ritual. Mark and his partner, Roger Elliott, have been teaching hypnosis for several decades, creating the preeminent resource for hypnosis material on the internet. Their content is so well-researched, so thoughtful, so well done. The idea of having Mark on for a chat has been in my head for ages, but now it's become a reality. So before we get into the conversation and Mark tells us all about what hypnosis is, how he got into it, and some powerful techniques anyone can use to improve their reality, for anyone who's never been hypnotized but is curious, I've created a special tape you can check out to experience hypnosis for yourself. The tape will teach you about hypnosis and in the process, guide you into a very positive and relaxing trance, incorporating some of the magic Mark shares at the end of this episode. If you'd like to listen to that tape, look for the link in the episode description or visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual and experience the magic for yourself. And now, without any further ado, I present an episode many, many years in the making as Mark Terrell teaches us how to hypnotize yourself and others. Well, hello, Mark. Hello, Devin. Now, before we get into this, I want to say one of the compliments that I get from listeners on a semi-regular basis is that they really enjoy the sound of my voice. And I have listened to hundreds of hours of your voice, and I think it's one of my favorite speaking <laughs> voices. So we've got a real treat for all the uh, voice fans out there in the world today. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope they like an English accent as well. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> What's our magic word going to be? Well, uh, it's an interesting one because, you know, you don't give us a lot to play with. Mm -hmm. And I think by constricting, you, you kind of give someone more freedom in, in a paradoxical kind of way. So I, my word is let. Let. Ooh, I like yeah. that. All right. So on the count of three, one, two, three, let. let. 
Okay. So let is in terms of sort of letting someone, giving permission? Well. Uh, or renting an apartment. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a suggestion. <laughs> I've, got, I've, I've got a couple of properties. No, um, it, really, I, I, the, the word sort of uh, presented itself to me because I feel that we live in a world so often which is very sort of grasping and grabbing and getting and going after, trying to force things. Yeah, And yet so many things in life really um, entail that we let other people do things for us. But also mm-hmm. we have to let sleep happen, for example. Right. You know, if you, you know, sleep faster, we need the pillows. You know, we're, we're trying to sleep, trying to force sleep doesn't usually work that well. Yeah. And trying to get other responses from the human body through force of will. <laughs> it's paradoxical in that way where it really it really backfires. Exactly. The, the more you try um, to get some responses in life, the worse it gets. And sometimes you just have to let things happen. And it's the same with hypnosis as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't really force it. Um, you allow it to happen. You know, I, I remember when um, I was first getting into hypnosis in the, in the early 90s, and I was with the training school, and I could hypnotize other people pretty kind of naturally and effectively, but I never really, really felt I'd gone in myself. Mm-hmm. And I was trying and trying and trying and trying in a muscular kind of way to go into hypnosis. And then one, one day I, I was, um, I had a sort of dip in the afternoon, and I sort of uh, lay down on the bed, and, and spontaneously I had all these, um, you know, hypnotic, uh, vivid hypnotic uh, phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. And levitation, uh, catalepsy, um, you know, in- incredibly rich uh, imagery and so forth. And it's as if my mind w- was doing it its own time, you know, and I, I, I wasn't trying to do it in that moment. But There I was a backlog was, waiting. It was like all the mail piled up from exactly. when you were on vacation and you yeah. came home and it spilled out the door. But that, that's right. And it, it's when, you know, inventors or people who discover things um, let themselves go in a sense that all the work they've done prior kind of manifests in in the discovery so it's an important thing that sometimes we miss in our culture because we're trying to grab and grasp and manipulate and make things happen so much we're a very forceful culture and one of your lines that uh that has stuck with me that i use with clients and i think was one of the first times i was listening to one of the downloads and really kind of zonked out for a moment there was you don't have to try or try not to try and that one is sort of just like a key that sticks in my brain. And, you know, it's like a riddle. And as soon as you're unpacking it, then all of a sudden it's someone's counting my numbers back. Where am I? Where would I go? Well, well, that, well that's right. That, that's right. Confusional language is, is mm-hmm. part of uh, hypnotic repertoire sometimes. And, and what you're doing there is you're sort of, I mean, there's truth in that statement as well, too. Right. But you're trying to, um, or letting happen, uh, confusion sort of tie up the conscious mind a little bit so that you can have ac- more access to the unconscious mind, you know. And just sort of, yeah, have the conscious mind throw up its hands and go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And it's like, nothing, that's right, just let it happen. Exactly, exactly. And when, it, when you, you finally, there is finally um, a clear suggestion, then the conscious mind or the unconscious mind and the conscious mind will grab hold of that suggestion, you know, it, because there's at last clarity. <laughs> yeah. Well, you already touched on this a little bit, but I'll let you go a little further. Um, how did you get interested in hypnosis? What brought you to this field? I, I think um, naturally I've, I've always been interested in people mm-hmm. and uh, what makes people tick and psychology. And 
I, I think that probably initially came from reading a lot, reading a lot of novels. Mm-hmm. And a good novel will have good characterization. And you start to realize that actually people are different. You know, not everyone's like me. People have their own uh, perspectives and agendas and ideas and characters and, and uh, journeys and experiences. And um, so from there, there I began working in a psychiatric unit mm. uh, in my early 20s, which is a very long time ago. And I, began, and I found that absolutely fascinating. You know, so you, you'd have severely psychotic patients and depressed patients and addicted patients and so forth. But I also found it dispiriting in mm. the sense that they weren't really getting treated. You know, right. I've gone into that sort of perhaps naively, innocently, um, expecting to be able to help, to really help people, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was a psychiatric nurse, so, you know, I wasn't sort of auxiliary, so I wasn't particularly high, high up in the hierarchy of, of the unit or anything. Um, but it was just a revolving door, you know, so you'd see the same people coming in and out, and, and really the treatment consisted of, of them, of their drug medi- you know, their medication just being, you know, sort of tinkered with. Right. Uh, and um, I, I found that quite depressing, so I, I sort of left that and, and um, worked um, in, a, in a housing association for a while, and then there was a talk by a hypnosis school in 1991, I think it was. And um, I attended that and, and decided to do their diploma course in London. Yeah. And it was very, it was very good. It was British Hypnosis Research um, run by Stephen Brooks. And um, part of the training was to see real clients. You know, mm-hmm. so it wasn't just other people in the hypnosis school. You, you know, it was terrifying. You know, the first weekend that we were there, we, uh, on the Monday, we were confronted with actual live clients from well there's public. a there's a very important <laughs> i think disbelief where i mean even you know i have clients call all the time and they say i'm afraid that you're going to turn me into like a mindless zombie also is this real and those are very interesting that you know we don't think yeah. it works and we're terrified of its power and i think when you're learning it there is that sense of is this really going to work i'm going to talk yeah. to this person in the, a voice and use some words and they're going to be able to have this this experience so that's that's interesting that they kind of threw you into the deep end of the pool pretty quickly to get. To well, get you we, over that. well, yeah, yes, and for me it was um, particularly striking because I, I had been used to seeing people not being helped particularly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not saying all psychiatry, you know, doesn't work or anything. But so I went from that environment to actually using words to sometimes help people with things like blood pressure and and mm. um, depression. Um, I have I have had a few semi psychotic patients over the years, but I don't tend to sort of deal with it and, and get startling results sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and that was a, an incredible revelation, you know, yeah. and, a, and a very positive step, I think, you know, for me personally to to actually see um, the amazing changes that you could you could sometimes help people with. Yeah. Well, I think there's a feeling of something happening in hypnosis. You know, you're at least thinking about things in new ways or visualizing something you haven't visualized before. And so there's some feeling immediately of, okay, I'm doing something here. And I think some people, that's almost all they need. As soon as that snowball starts rolling down the hill, they're ready to let go of that habit and create a change. Yes. I mean, there is an incredible power uh, to ritual as well. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, that that's some, often overlooked in our culture as well, you know. So everything's mechanized and mass produced, but actually taking time with somebody, uh, giving them attention, and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps engaging in some kind of ritual with them, 
is extremely powerful in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and and if nothing else, you know, lot, lots of alternative you know sort of medicines and procedures kind of do that fill that gap that perhaps more mainstream medicine doesn't. Yeah, I've read that about uh, acupuncture that, you know, putting aside whether or not acupuncture is effective in and of itself, that the studies have found there's so much more patient intake care and processing that helps the patient feel like they're getting attention, that it activates a lot of that um, healing that we're all capable of when we can trust that we are being healed, somebody is healing us. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's something called the Hawthorne effect in the, in the 1930s. Um, uh, Hawthorne led a study in... in uh, I don't know if it was a Ford factory, but anyway, they they wanted to look at what would make the difference in, in productivity in the staff with the staff, you know. So these research a bunch of researchers came in for many months, and and they paid a lot of attention to to the um, workers in the factory, and they changed the working hours, extended the lunch breaks, mm-hmm. uh, had had more sort of after work activities laid on for them, and they made all these changes. And after all the time, Hawthorne. Um, discovered that the thing that had the biggest effect was the attention the researchers were giving to the workers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. There you go. So the Hawthorne effect shouldn't be overlooked in any sphere of life, really. Yeah. No, I think you know attention is really important and our culture has become more and more um, individualized and alienated. So there's a lot of things that we're just trying to solve all of these problems on our own and I'll often use the metaphor of it's like moving a piece of furniture that's not very heavy, but it's very bulky. And you just need a buddy to come over and help you lift it, you know, like yeah, get it up the stairs. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to be able to do it on your own. So it's not that the problem is so bad that you need somebody else because you are failing. It's just it's not a one person problem. And having somebody else to talk to and say, hey, I'm trying to lose weight and I don't know why I keep failing at it. Can you help me brainstorm some other ideas? Like that alone, I think, can make a huge difference for somebody. A- absolutely. We've become atomized uh, as a culture, you know. So we're, we're not that collective as far as problems are concerned, you know, yeah. as, as you say. And, and, but also there's a shame as well. You know, so certainly on social media, there's a pressure to look as, as if you're always having a fantastic time. You know, yeah, and that you're living the best possible life, you know, twenty four seven, and 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 there's a lot of uh, approval seeking as well, you know, and and there's a there's a ritual there as well because you mm-hmm. put up something and then other other people say it's wonderful and then hopefully you do the same in return. So so there is a ritual to that, but there's also a pressure, you know, right. and it could be hard to admit that actually, you know, I'm struggling here. That yeah. thing, things aren't aren't easy, and there, there can be a shame shame in sort of admitting that for some people. I think, yeah. Yeah, well, as a, as a wizard, I often try to pull back the, the the curtain, hiding the small man as often as I can to show people that you know I can have these ideas, I can have this fun thing, but also like I'm a I'm a human being. I wake up and struggle to you know figure out what I'm going to do with my day and how to get that goal that I wanted to set done and all of those things, just like everybody else. So absolutely, and I, I think when you're with a client as well as a hypnotherapist, it can be useful. To help sort of normalize their, their problem, depending on what it is. Um, sure. Not that you as a therapist want to go on and on about yourself, <laughs> because, and, they, and then they pay you. But um, just to say, yes, you know, I, I, I'm meeting a crowd of new people. You know, I'll, I'll have some anxiety before, before that. You know, it it's, wouldn't necessarily be natural to have 100% no anxiety, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that can be absolutely fine, you know. So, so it, it's just, and, and for some people, it could be a revelation that, 
you, the person they come to see, aren't sort of perfect in every sphere. Well, I, I know that um, I've recommended the public speaking tapes that you have to quite a few people. And I think one of the things that's so valuable in those is the idea that the goal here is not to be 100% confident, because if that's the goal, the second you have any nerves, you've failed and now you feel even worse. But when you realize that nervousness is a part of public speaking and that you want nervousness to be in the acceptable range, but that's the joy is feeling nervous before the talk, getting up on stage, getting in the moment, and then afterwards going, oh, wow, I did really great. And that nervous energy is now this like endorphin rush and feels great. And I think those are a lot more resilient models than the idea that we're supposed to be perfect people 100% of the time. Well, well, well absolutely. You know, and, and you, you, there's, not, there's nothing so good you know, that the more and more and more and more of it is necessarily better. Mm-hmm. You know? right. Including things like exercise and, and, or sleeping pills, as we know. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of public speaking. Don't do, I haven't done, you know, since COVID, not so much. But um, I, I would speak to maybe a thousand people a week, you know, wow. in, in, in different seminars up and down the UK to the NHS and, and, and uh, um, about sp- sp- uh, specifically self-esteem and, and um, bullying in the workplace. Mm-hmm. How to stop it, not, not how to do it. Uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, I, I got to the point where I was too relaxed on stage, you know. Yeah. And so I, I developed a little ritual of my own where before I went on stage, I would close my eyes and imagine being on a roller coaster, you know, this imaginary mm-hmm. roller coaster that was the biggest in the world, you know, j- just to rev myself up a bit as well. Right, yeah, get that adrenaline going. Coffee as well. And, uh, you know, so, so it's, not, it's not ideal to be completely relaxed or completely confident either, you know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, I was just going to say, it's interesting about confidence as well. I think people think that it is a complete absence of fear or a complete certainty. Whereas really um, confidence is the feeling that whatever happens, I'll be okay. Right. Yeah, Even if I fall on my face and they all hate me. Mm-hmm. It, confidence isn't going into a room for, uh, with 150 people and thinking, I know they're all going to love me and think I'm fantastic. Yeah. You know, that, that's, uh, that might be something, that might be delusional, but... Um, but confidence is, however they find me, whatever happens, it's, it'll be fine. It'll be, I'll be okay. You know, that, that's confidence. There's one of those weird psychology experiments that I'm, I'm particularly fond of where they had um, recordings, like audio-only recordings of someone coming in for a job interview. And there's two candidates who were exactly matched and, you know, were perfect. But in one of the interviews, they spilled a cup of coffee on the table and then <laughs> had to apologize and clean it up. And people... <laughs> listening to the recordings later were asked, you know, who do you think should get this job? And people liked the person that spilled the coffee better, even though their credentials were identical to the candidate who didn't, because it made them more human. And that made them more relatable than someone who felt kind of like a robot or perfect. Uh, I saw that research and it's fascinating, but not surprising in a way Mm -hmm. that um, people are more relatable when when they're Human. It doesn't mean that they're a klutz the whole time and that they're sort of tripping yeah. over their feet and, and <laughs> they're doing everything wrong. But if they're generally seen as competent and, and mm-hmm. you know engaging and agreeable, but they, as you say, drop drop some coffee or something, then they are perceived as more positively. Right. Yeah. yeah. We like humans. No one likes a um. smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> some people like a little bit of a smart ass. Oh um. yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious um, how you went from your own personal hypnosis practice to uh, both uncommon knowledge and hypnosis downloads and what the genesis of that was. Wow. Well, um, I started running 
workshops. I, I, I initially, after becoming a hypnotherapist in 1993, I started working in, in a health shop in, in Brighton. And um, this was, you know, sort of wind chimes and, and uh, you know, incense sticks and that kind of a place. Yeah. And they had all kinds of practitioners there. And one day, the Bob, who, who ran the place, said to me, um, would you mind giving a talk about hypnosis? Because all the practitioners are giving talks, you know, to the public to whip up yeah. trade, you know. And I said, absolutely, I'd mind, you know. And he said, no, go on. So I, so I did. And I was terrified because I'd never done any public speaking before. Mm -hmm. And I found that, you know, so the acupuncturist had people coming in and she was talking about acupuncture and the uh, homeopath was, and, and all the other ones... And then, but for my talk, they were sort of crowding in, in the hallway outside. You know, it was yeah. so busy, and I was absolutely terrified. I thought, God, you know, but a part of me was thinking, but there's there's potential here. This is, this is there's movement, there's interest, there's interest. You know, um, so I did uh, did a talk and I did a demonstration with a highly hypnotizable person, and then um, I, I thought, well, I'll start doing workshops. You know, and, it, and so I put a few few hundred leaflets out out in in town, which isn't enough. But I didn't know anything about marketing. <laughs> And but I got sixteen people, all all paying me seventy five bucks for the weekend or something, which which for me back then was a lot of money all in one go. You know, mm -hmm. I thought this is, this is incredible. So I started running workshops. Um, I had a young, fa I had a family as well. I, I had even though I was you know in my early twenties, I had two kids, so I was struggling for money. So I had three or four jobs all at the same time, <laughs> as, well, <laughs> as as well as trying to get that off the, off the ground. And that was kind of working. I was seeing, I was seeing clients as well. And um, but I, and one of the jobs I got was in telephone fundraising, mm. and that's where I met my current business partner, Roger Elliott. He, mm -hmm. he was, he was. Doing, so basically, we we were sort of verbally mugging people on the phone for charity money, you know, and and it was a tough job. But we we sort of he came along on some of the workshops, really enjoyed them, um, did some training, and um, we we started running them together all around the UK. And that got more and more successful. Then we started running a diploma course as well at Brighton, uh, at uh, Sussex University. Then I think in 1999, we went online and we started selling CDs. Mm. <laughs> we had been selling cassette tapes before then. So right. we were going back a while. <laughs> we had a self confidence website, selfconfidence.co.uk. Um, we set up hypnosis. Download. We stopped running the diploma courses in 2008 because of the crash, financial crash, and it, you know it wasn't really working. So we, we sort of went fully online then, and by that by that time we'd already started uh, hypnosisdownloads.com, mm -hmm. which has got over a thousand um, audios on it now. Oh, it has so many, yeah, <laughs> so, so many for every every most problems you can imagine, yeah, and um, or, or aspirations you can imagine. Uh, so we really focused on that, and um, we've been developing that ever, ever since. And when we um, we have an uncommon knowledge um, website as well, and we offer training uh, to augment the training of other therapists as well. So we get psychologists and counselors mm -hmm. and coaches um, doing our training. Um, but for the public, we have the audios as right. well. Well, I think it's um, one of the things that I really like about it is you have such a vast catalog. And so if somebody is experiencing a problem, it's nice to feel seen when you go and you search and it's like, here's your exact issue. And you go, oh, okay, that, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm dealing with. And it's a conversational approach. So I always tell people, it's like, 
you're hearing, you're reading a really good blog post about this issue with really just here's some research, here's some information. So that alone is incredibly valuable. And then it gets into the hypnotic portion. But I think just having that reminder that you're not alone in this issue, other people have studied it, here's some of the problem solving, that combined with the hypnosis is just wonderful. Yeah, I think understanding what's happening to you Mm -hmm. is really important for people. If they're depressed, to understand that what's often fueling the depression is rumination. Time spent mm-hmm. in your head without solution. Yep. You know, so um, worrying and mulling mm-hmm. stuff over um, to the exclusion of action. The gear is spinning, but it slipped the belt. And exactly. It's not connected to and, yep. and then what happens is that depressed people dream more than people who aren't depressed, and they dream mm-hmm. more intently. And the problem with that is that they're getting less slow wave sleep. So they're waking up exhausted. And we do find that depressed people usually feel worst in the mornings. Right. Even if they've been asleep, you know, often they can't sleep, but if they have been asleep, they still don't feel rested from their sleep because of the um, composition of the sleep. They haven't had much recuperative slow-wave sleep. They've had a lot of REM right. sleep because the brain is metaphorically trying to sort of um, flush out the emotionally disturbing expectations from the day before, wrought through the you know ruminating sort of thing. So there's mm-hmm. a sort of cycle, and once people understand that, they can often see what's been happening to them. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, as you know, with anxiety and, and stress. You, you sort of explain that actually every symptom of stress is, is adaptive in the short term, but, it, but when it's in the long term, it becomes maladaptive. Yeah, you know. So, um, for example, you don't want to you don't want to fall asleep if there's lions prowling around you. You know, so you mm-hmm. stay awake. You know, that's great in the short term. You don't want to be digesting food, and you know, so blood gets pumped into the major muscles for fighting, and that's great in in the short term. But long term, that can you know, cause um, you know IBS and other other stress related conditions, insomnia. Um, you don't want to be sexually excited when you're confronted with a lion in the short term because no. it, it might it might make the lion run away, but it might have. <laughs> so, so uh, but, but in the but in the long term, that that could have you know, if you're stressed, it could be sexual problem. So all these symptoms of stress actually in the short term are adaptive responses to a threat. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so so is kind of normalizing things for people a bit. Well, sort of like going around and only having a hammer and trying to use that on every problem. And it's like, okay, this works for some things, but now we're using it in another context where it's no longer appropriate and we want to add more tools to that toolbox so you have better options. Absolutely. Human beings are generally problem solving. Yeah. And and your unconscious mind, your instinctive mind thinks it's it's helping you out because, you know, you, you... Somehow you've identified a threat out there, and it's okay. Well, if there's a threat out there, then we'll, we'll stop you sleeping so much, you know, because you you might get attacked, or we'll stop you, you know, um, we'll, we'll have blood in in your big muscles for fighting or running away, so you'll you won't digest food so much, you know, and and you know, so e- even 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 stress symptoms like a sort of the body, uh, the, the instinctive mind trying to help people out, you know, yeah. but getting it a bit wrong. One of the mantras I used to use when I would have those ruminative cycles was, what if the only problem is you thinking there's a problem? And so my brain would start to, you know, problem solve. And how do I figure this thing out? And it's so bad. I need to work on it. I'm like, what if it's not a problem at all? And it's the only issue is that I'm trying to think about it in terms of a problem. And it was just sort of like a meditation of pulling myself back from that problem solving instinct and eventually get into a point where it's like, actually, you know, I'm safe. I'm inside. I've got plenty of food. There's actually really nothing that's a crisis right now. And I can kind of let that go. Well, yeah, that's that's beautiful. That, that's really, really, and, and it's so true as well. You know what, what mm-hmm. we what we think. You know, you have the problem itself, and then you have the problem of how you respond to the problem. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Problems all the way down. You know, people can get, <laughs> become angry that they feel sad. You know, or mm-hmm. uh, 
sort of sad that they, they get angry sometimes, you know, so we can have an emotion about it, an emotion as, as well. Feeling less confident because you don't feel confident. Yeah, well, yeah. Ex- exactly. A vicious mm-hmm. cycle. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you the big question now. Uh, what is hypnosis? Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, um, people often have a sort of paradoxical approach to it. So they're sort of fearful of it or, or they... Mm-hmm. Or they um, see you know they think of just the dramatic elements to it um on on the one hand and on the other hand they don't believe in it you know and they they often pride themselves in not believing it as well Mm -hmm. people uh pride and skepticism often go hand in hand (laughs) yeah i'm I'm stronger because i know that i can't be hypnotized yeah yes and and i can i can see through this you know i can i so i'm cleverer than than other people but um i would i would describe it as Hypnosis is the purposeful use of a trance state mm-hmm. um, applied to um, have an effect on an, on an individual. Okay, yeah. so so a trance state would be accessing the REM state, rapid eye movement state, which occurs during dreaming, or well, that's how we assume that it most commonly occurs. Okay, through through mm-hmm. the dream state. So if we think of, of the dream state at night. Most people have had a dream that they can rem- remember at some point, but everyone's had a dream, even if they've never remembered any. Okay, and we know this from, from sort of brain scans of, of sleeping individuals. Uh, a, a dream at night is a hypnotic state. You know, so somebody mm-hmm. could come along and say, "Well, I don't believe in hypnosis," but they'll happily tell you about a dream they had. Now, in that dream, they're, they're in bed, they're in a room, uh, but they've totally become disassociated from the bed and the room, and they're. Uh, They've accessed their imagination to the extent that they feel the things that are occurring in their imagination. They yeah. see the things. It's the deepest hypnotic state you can really experience. Okay, but we can also access the the REM state in life, and it mm-hmm. often occurs through shock. You know, so for example, um, someone can have um, a traumatic experience, maybe a car wreck or something like that, and time will seem to slow down. Everything will seem quite disassociated and dreamlike, and mm-hmm. so forth, and and so they've been propelled into a naturally occurring deep, but wide awake REM state or hypnotic state, to the point that a suggestion will go into them, and act as a post-hypnotic suggestion. So next time they get in the car, they feel terrified. Okay, yeah. So that's a very powerful learning that they've had. And life has has produced a sort of hypnotic response in them and a post-hypnotic suggestion. So in a way, which is why hypnosis is so good for post-traumatic stress disorder, because you're treating a a hypnotic condition with, with, you know, sort of palliative um, or curative hypnosis. Yeah. So, So I would say that hypnosis is an accessing of the REM state and the old way of hypnotizing people, cliched way, was swinging a watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you're artificially getting the person to to actually the eyes to move, yeah. the eyes to move from side to side. But also, we see other features in the hypnotic state um, that we also see in the dreaming individual. So, accessing the imagination um, to to the point of um, uh, disassociation from the surroundings. So you can forget that the room you're in, you know, and you become totally focused on. Um, the contents of your imagination. And of course, that can happen when you're watching TV or when you're reading a book or so forth. Um, but also catalepsy as well. Now, catalepsy or, or the, um, the inhibition of, of anti-gravity muscles happens when we dream at night because if I'm dreaming of being Superman and there's a, it's a summer's night and the window's open, 
nature doesn't want me getting up and actually diving out the window, you know. So, yeah. so I can feel as if I'm diving out the window and flying, but my but I, there's catalepsy in my body. The body is very still in dreaming people. Pe- people move and thrash around, you know, in in slow wave sleep, but not so much in REM sleep. There's a, there's, there's a waxiness. Uh, I like eyelid uh, catalepsy occurs as well. So we don't open our eyes and start dreaming with our eyes mm-hmm. open usually. Um, and we see this in the hypnotized individual. You you see the the eyelids um, going from side to side beneath the lids sometimes. Mm-hmm. See catalepsy, and catalepsy um, can turn into anesthesia very easily, which is why we use hypnosis for operations and, and or, or for pain management and, and, and so forth. Um, yes, yes. So so so, th- so those are the similarities. You know that that's why I, I think that it's very connected to the REM state, the rapid eye mm-hmm. state, which is also perhaps um, the state of mind and body that, that mystics enter when they connect to greater patterns of reality and, and so forth. Yeah, it was a few years ago I read the book um, Journeys Out of Body by Robert Monroe, who was, um, he was an American radio executive and was very interested in um, like learn while you sleep. It was an idea that was all the rage in the 40s and 50s. I mean, you listen right. to an audio cassette and you'll <laughs> learn French while you're sleeping. And he was experimenting with those and then started having these states where he would feel his body vibrate. And then he would have these dreams where he did not feel like he had gone unconscious. And so he thought this was very different than just falling asleep. But it was fascinating as I read that, having experience with hypnosis. And I'm like, okay. I think that there's a, a whole spectrum of here from sleep to light trance to daydreaming to more mystic states of consciousness. And we don't really have the vocabulary yet to like clearly differentiate. Also, human beings are unique. So one person's is not going to be the same as somebody else's. But everything that he was describing, I was like, this sounds a lot like you're accessing a very interesting dreamlike state that is not the same as uh, just you know falling asleep and entering normal. Ram at three in the morning. Yes, I mean certainly people can have waking dreams uh, or visions and yeah. so forth, and it may be that they're entering. And, and I like the word continuum as well. You know, right. I, I think yeah. uh, there are you can be more or less entranced. Of course, you know, I mean you can you can be dozing, having a you know napping during the day, and you sort of know that you're on the couch, but part of you's kind of somewhere else as well, you know. So you have this parallel awareness. And we, we find that in hypnotized subjects. So we use them, or generally use the medium of relaxation to enter the REM state for therapeutic hypnosis. <laughs> so we're not trying to shock people into, into hypnosis like they do on stage shows and so forth. But, yeah. um, the, the, um, but you have that parallel awareness. So the person sort of knows that they're with a hypnotist, a hypnotherapist. It's not as if they've, it's not as if they've gone into a dream state and they've totally forgotten the bed and, and, and the bedroom like they do when they're dreaming at night. Um, you know, they're aware that they're sitting in the, in the therapist's chair, that they're in, in the room, but they have a pet, but there's another part of them that's also aware that maybe the pain's lessening or that they're feeling very relaxed or they're accessing a, um, a beautiful memory they hadn't thought about for a long time. And it feels very real and multisensory. So there's that sort of parallel awareness with with trance as well sometimes. Yeah, I think awareness is a really great lens because there's all sorts of things happening that we're not aware of until we think about them. A lot of inductions are reminding people that you have an awareness of what your feet feel like, but you're not aware of it until you start thinking about your toes and are they in your socks and how does that feel? And then suddenly you become more and more aware. I know um, I've had that experience where you, you know, you're know you at the pool or something and you stub your toe without realizing it. And so someone says, hey, your toe's bleeding and you had no idea you didn't feel any pain until you look down and you go, oh, okay, now, <laughs> now I'm aware of that. 
Yeah, well, that's right. It's all about where you put awareness, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, there's a there's a Milton Erickson um, case whereby he was treating a woman with uh, you know terminal cancer and very uh, chronic pain, and he was treating the pain, and he suggested to her, you know, what would happen to the pain if um, suddenly a tiger came around the door or something. I might be misquoting yeah. this case slightly, but. Um, and she said, well, the pain would disappear. And she said, in fact, it's kind of gone a bit now. He was obviously being very hypnotic with her. And, mm-hmm. you know, so distraction doesn't sound, it sounds too trivial, a, a technique for pain management. But of course it happens, you know, in war yeah. or, or, or at the pool when you stub your toe, that um, your, your, your consciousness is taken up with other things. And, and, and actually, that, so the pain um, lessens, you know. Yeah. So, so, you know, because pain is, is obviously awareness. You have to have awareness of the pain for the pain to be there. No, that's right. That's absolutely true. It's all to do with what you're focusing on, you know. Well, I'm glad you brought up Erickson because one of the things that's so fascinating, I just read this book um, that I got when I was in the UK, Hidden Depths, which is a history of hypnosis. And it's amazing to see yeah. that it's a history of, you know, people trying a bundle of techniques and there's something in there that's working. And then the next person comes along and says, you know what? I don't think we need to hold metal rods and buckets of water. I don't think that's the important part. <laughs> yeah. We can dispense with that. And now we'll get down to this and the techniques evolve. And then Erickson, I think, was the watershed moment where the more conversational approach really started coming, which is, of course, um, what you know you use. And I think most hypnotists today are using in yeah. some form or another. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what it is in those approaches and uh, even also how, you know, you have such a ver- variety of inductions that you do on your tapes. And I'm curious how it is that you decide which inductions you feel like go with which conditions and um, also having fun and exploring. Yes. I mean, I mean, certainly hypnosis had a bad rap originally. You know, I mean, it's a timeless technique. You know, the Egyptians were using a you know, the sleep temples of Greece and, and so forth. But um, in, in, in Enlightenment times, where we were all getting very rationalistic and scientific, along came Franz Anton Mesmer, and he, he was doing mesmerism, and, and he sort of insisted on, on the idea of a universal fluid um, mm-hmm. or, you know, universal magnetism and sort of metal filings and, and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. as part of the ritual. And as we said before, you know, you can't discount the power of ritual anyway. Um, I don't. <laughs> but, but, but no, you, you above all people, you above all people. Yeah. Uh, but he, and, and scientific investigators came along and they said, well, there's no evidence for this universal sort of, mm-hmm. you know, prana or chi or, or, or you know. Well, and that's, yeah, that, because they were so narrow in their focus, they said, We've, we don't think there's any evidence that there's this force, but then they completely ignored. Exactly. You are getting very real effects with yeah, these people, it, but that was not in the scope of our investigation. It, it, so it's, we'll it's set a, that to the a side. It's a great example of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is a metaphor, uh, usually. So um, James Isdale, he was, he was a Scottish doctor, and he, mm-hmm. he, uh, he, got, he got people to sort of focus on a spot on the wall, and, and he would do um, surgery under hypnosis and so forth. So he got a little bit more respectable. But um, Milton Erickson was a psychiatrist and, and a medical doctor and um, used hypnosis conversationally. And, and he, was, he was very good at looking at people and mm. just studying them. As you probably know, he had polio twice in his life, once when he was 17. And he, he was uh, paralyzed for a year or so. And all he could do was observe people. And he, he discovered that people talk with their bodies and their faces, not just the mouths, you know, and, he, and uh, 
he he um, was very interested in the way people could influence other people, and this happens anyway. You know, people say, yeah. "Oh, isn't it, isn't it manipulative?" And you think, "Well, all conversations manipulative." You know, mm-hmm. if you go to the store and someone says, "How are you?" then they're they're directing your focus of attention. You know, how how am mm-hmm. I? You know, so they've narrowed your focus of attention. You might have been thinking about something else. So all all communication has, has this sort of element to it, whereby it's persuading people of something. You know, yeah. And um, Erickson would use um, solution-focused hypnotherapy. So, of course, Freud had started off with using hypnosis. He wasn't very good at hypnosis. And uh, he, <laughs> it, it landed off uh, Charcot, who, who's a sort of psycholo- a French psychologist. And they, they, uh, he sort of developed the idea that the unconscious mind or the subconscious mind was a sort of cesspool. You know, it was a negative thing, really. It was a cesspool right. of, of your hidden desires and, and, your, you know, <laughs> and your resentments and all these negative things. And it could all spill out if you weren't careful. And, and you know... Whereas Erickson saw the unconscious mind more as a resource, he was interested in solutions, not just discovering where the problem came from and hoping that that would miraculously cure the problem. But he, he was actually interested in what resources does this person have? How can we build up these resources through their unconscious understandings? Um, how, how can we use language um, naturalistically so it doesn't seem too clunky? Or weird. <laughs> getting rid of the, you are getting sleepy, sleepy. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Which of course can work, but for... Totally works. <laughs> more, for more people, yeah. But for more people, yeah. um, it's, it, you know, for, for example, you can embed suggestions, you know, so you can, mm-hmm. you can um, have a direct suggestion which someone could resist to, but you can embed that suge- direct suggestion within a, a more permissive framework. So for, you right. know, for example, if I say to you, you know, uh, many people find that they can begin to relax deeply mm-hmm. now that the summer's here, you know. So, so begin to relax deeply is for you, but uh, ostensibly I'm talking about other people, you know. So Erickson was sort of introduced these patterns and he found that people were already doing this as well, but subconsciously people emphasize the part of um, a communication which is most important to them. So, so all the Ericksonian language patterns were based on observation. They weren't just sort of made up, which is in- mm-hmm. interesting, you know. Illusory choice is another one, and of course, salespeople do that. So, yeah. <laughs> so if I say to you, you know, do you, do you want to uh, enjoy going in, into hypnosis on, on, on in that chair or on that couch, you know, then really, I seem it seems like I've given you a choice, but it's an illusory choice. You know, do you want to pay now or later for the car? You know, <laughs> right? Have character. you noticed which hand is more relaxed? Is it the left or the right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you could you could find yourself going deeper into relaxation now or in a few moments. You know, so. Embedded commands, illusory choice, presuppositions as well. You know, as mm-hmm. you begin to become slimmer, then what will be the first things that you notice? Not, not where, you know, not if you became slimmer. So, a confident way of communicating, and 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 he sort of mastered all that. And his case histories are absolutely fascinating. You know, and tell us a lot about human psychology and motivation. Yeah, it's really interesting too. Um, um, reading some of the case histories, everything is a product of its time. And it's interesting seeing the different issues and things that come up. And the one that blew my mind was there was a story, and I think it's my voice will go with you, where he talks about some client that he went up to, and he asked her a question about the rabbit. 
And I was totally baffled. I was like, what does this mean? And I had to look it up. And I didn't know that they used to use rabbits as a form of pregnancy test. So it was about this woman being pregnant, but you used to inject a woman's urine into the rabbit and then you dissect it a day or two later. And like, <laughs> this was this was like a pregnancy test they were doing in the 40s. You <laughs> yeah. know, your doctor's office in the 40s would have a little warren of rabbits in the back. <laughs> I think, I mean, I was I was reading all this stuff in the, in the early 90s, but I think you have to be very open-minded now to mm-hmm. to read his case histories, um, <laughs> um, and I don't know how many open minded people there are enough to to be able to yeah. sort of think. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll understand it's a, of a different time, but I'll yeah. I'll take what I can learn about this. What it says about timeless perennial psychology. Um, but even yes, I, I know I, I'd forgotten the, the one about the rabbit actually. But yeah, <laughs> well, I'm curious how you um, and your company do the research because you you seem to be very on top of latest research, interesting examples, strategies, all of that. So I'm curious how you approach picking out a problem and then um, digging into it to help some, um, not someone, a lot of people, because these are all widely available. Yes. Well, I mean, I read constantly um, mm-hmm. and, and watch stuff online as well, <laughs> which is easier and quicker. Um, you know, so so I'm very interested in, in, in psychology. And also, Roger and myself were... Um, involved in starting up the human givens movement as well with my father mm-hmm. and, and Joe Griffin. So, so we had access to learning really good, commonsensical but quite profound psychology. Um, yeah. So we're not just it's not just about hypnotherapy. It, it's you know you need hypnotherapy, but you need a backbone of, of really um, good, solid psychology as well. Sure. And an understanding of human nature from that degree. So, so that's one element um, of keeping up to date with with things. Re- just reading and and keeping on top and practicing as well. Uh, always learning, having a learning mindset, and never assuming that you know everything or know most things. As as far as titles are concerned, we we have um, people write into us and, with suggestions. So we get hundreds yeah. of suggestions every week. Roger and myself will go through every single one. And we will select the ones that we think are interesting or that we could do something with. Then we will see if there's search for it as well online. Mm. And sometimes there is. If there isn't, it doesn't mean we won't do it. You know, but but that's you know obviously it's more interesting to us if if there's a yeah. bigger demand for that. Right. Um, and then we will brainstorm ideas around it together, and then we'll um, write a script, and then we'll record it. So you collaborate on like brainstorming. You have a list of topics, and you're going, "All right, how are yeah. we going to do teeth grinding and menstrual cramps this week?" And yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. The, the other thing I do is I, I record live sessions of, of me doing therapy, and we have mm-hmm. those available for therapists. Just to, just to, and, and the, I've written about the sessions, and Roger and me discuss them, and then they can watch them. And uh, I, I don't know how many there are. There's probably about seventy sessions now that. With different clients for for things like bruxism, you know, tooth grinding and panic attacks and and um, post traumatic stress and depression and you know. Well, that was what led me to my um, hypnosis training. Was I was reading one of the uh, Bandler and Grinder books, and it was a transcript from a workshop they'd done. And I got to a point where I threw the book down because I was like, I can't see what they're talking about. They're saying, "Ah, <laughs> oh, you can see the person's facial muscles relaxing yeah. and their eyes doing this and that." I'm like, "No, I can't." So I think there's a lot of value in having visuals and seeing the whole process of what it's actually like to have a client conversation rather than well, just a script. That, that, that's something else we don't have so much more, so much of anymore, which is the apprentice system. Sort of learning mm. by osmosis, learning by watching, and just observing mm-hmm. someone doing something. 
and you can pick up so much through that. Uh, just someone's way of going about things, and um, it, can, it can almost um, have a magical effect on, on on someone just observing. You know, it's, it's not the only part of learning. Obviously, they need to do, be doing it themselves as well. Um, but it, it's it's a highly important thing just just to observe people who are good at something. You know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm you know the best exemplar of, of hypnosis ever, but but you know, so, someone who's proficient at something, just watching them do that is powerful. You know, yeah. so if you want to get good at public speaking, watch lots and lots and lots of lots of people online who are great at public speaking. Yeah. Know? Well, I think when you know, like if if I've heard Stephen King and other people say, if you want to be a great writer, you got to read a lot, like just yeah. absorbing other language. And when I started my practice, I definitely felt that all of the years that I'd spent listening to hypnosis downloads was valuable because so many of those phrases were now just in both my conscious and unconscious, and it was a lot easier to bring up a presupposition or get into my hypnotic voice because I'd had that, um, that experience of those hours and hours of just absorbing and understanding. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, another thing I do as well, and I know you've done a lot of writing, mm -hmm. is um, write a blog on Uncommon mm -hmm. Knowledge. Um, and I've written maybe 500 of them, <laughs> for better or worse. And, um, but, but of course, I'm researching for them as well. So, mm -hmm. You know, you're you're always learning. You're always picking up sort of information and, and uh, yeah, the latest findings findings in psychology and trying to to link those findings to an understanding of the human condition as a whole. Otherwise, they're just bits of information that you can just forget. Yeah, I think there's a translation process where you know, if you read the white paper from the academic journal, the information is in there, but there's a lot of other stuff about experimental protocol and things. Yeah. And then when you hear that excerpted in you know, a popular science book or something else, it's fascinating. But then when you connect that with, here's this idea about spilling coffee, and it doesn't mean whenever you go into a job interview, you should try and <laughs> punch your coffee across the table, <laughs> but rather appreciating the way that your own human flaws are making you endearing and relatable to other people, rather than trying to sweep all of them under the rug. And then suddenly someone goes, oh, aha. Well, well, that's beautifully put, actually. That's a really good illustration of, of how we can sort of take something so literally and think, well, all I have to do to attract somebody is just to act like this and because I've read this somewhere that you know women find that attractive so I'm going to do this and <laughs> yeah I think yeah. there's a lot of that on the internet and, and um, that yeah as you as you said you have to be more subtle the way you 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 know do these things well I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's you know in my early days of trying to figure out because I was fascinated by hypnosis and I would I would search on you know the internet and I would find some YouTube video that's like we'll teach you a hypnosis induction and then it would be some sort of weird instant induction they would give the standard pattern about hypnosis and then they would quickly show this thing and then they would say buy our 16 DVD set to learn more and I was like I just want some good solid information yeah and there's so much stuff about pickup artists and you know use these hypnotic secrets to seduce women and I think it misses that most important thing, which is rapport. Yeah. You know, if I walk up to someone at the grocery store and I say, now I wonder which of your hands is going to start relaxing right now. <laughs> Neither of their hands is going to start relaxing because it's not a magic word. It's building on top of yeah. all of the other things you do to make someone comfortable and 
make yourself relatable. And it works when somebody wants to go into hypnosis. It doesn't work when somebody's just sitting next to you on the airplane <laughs> and wishes you'd stop talking to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, you can bore people into hypnosis as well. Mm -hmm. You know, because if we think of <laughs> if we think of hypnosis, uh, it wouldn't make a great YouTube video. But if we think of hypnosis as a state of abstraction, you know, so part of you's here, part of you's somewhere else. <laughs> then if if I'm going on and on about my latest choice of wallpaper to a guy on on the plane that's sitting next to me uh, ad nauseum then if he's very polite he, and doesn't tell me just to shut up he'll, he'll pretend he's he'll, he'll be nodding on the outside but he won't be listening to what i'm saying he'll be you know thinking about all, all kinds of more interesting stuff so so in a in a way he has entered you know a, a type of trance that's true yeah i think that's <laughs> the funny thing where it's the, the classic line is we can't make anyone do something they don't want to do, but people do things they don't want to do all the time because they feel social pressure or they feel it would be more awkward to get up and leave than just to continue sitting through the seminar or whatever yeah. sort of thing. So well, that, that's, that's true, isn't it? It's, it's an interesting um, question about free will. I think there is free will, but you know, do I do the things I do because of where I was born, my surroundings, my culture? Uh, right. my my genetic sort of um, programming you know um or, or am i really choosing to do the things that i do you know it's 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 a good question well that question brings us to i think a great introduction to um how we'll close out this episode which is a spell which the audience that's listening right now has free will to decide whether or not they'll do this and bring this into their life but I'm curious, what is, you know, you have such wonderful, helpful advice on so many different topics, but what is one small thing that the listeners can do to bring some of this magic into their own lives? Well, um, I'm not used to describing things as spells, um, but I like it. And I, I would say that one thing that you can do is to spend time accessing times where you felt really good and don't neglect that. You know, people, you know, if you think about replaying crappy stuff that you experienced in the past it's a, it's a little bit like um in the old days when you rented a video you know and you, mm -hmm. you rent out a video you go and, and you hate it but you keep renting it out again even though it sucks right. you hate it you know <laughs> and, and then you rent out a really good movie and you absolutely love it it makes you feel fantastic and you never watch it again so spend it spending time um really engaging it in times where you felt good you know it doesn't have to be wonderful yeah. just pretty good and then maybe focusing on your out breath and as you do so just saying the word to yourself now okay because now is, is a word that is about change you know now is the time okay and, mm. and just just doing that now the reason we breathe out that the out breath is important is because it uh, mobilizes the parasympathetic nervous system mm -hmm. the, the relaxation response so people who panic hyperventilate because they're not breathing out they're just breathing in you know which is great if you're at the gym on the running machine but not so great if you're in a business meeting so so um breathing out puts you into the parasympathetic nervous system long if your breath's out longer than the ones in then you can't help but relax doing that saying now in conjunction with um accessing happier memories then after a time you don't have to access the happier memories because there's an association in your mind and body so you can just breathe out and say to yourself now that could be before something you need to do or you know or whenever and, and that might be 
useful thing. That's wonderful. I love that. So it, it feels a lot like um, what we talked about with Ericsson and resources, that someone who's you know about to go on a date or public speak and feels nervous is dissociating from the fact that they've gone on plenty of dates that were really fun and exciting. Yeah. That's why you like going on dates. You've probably had plenty of times where you were public speaking and it went well, or if not public speaking, where you told a group of friends at a bar a fun story and everyone was hanging on every exactly. word. Yeah. And so taking a moment have that highlight reel of those memories that you want to, I love the video analogy that you want to rewatch, rent and rewatch again, and then extending that out breath, saying now and charging up that word. And that becomes a nice little magic trick that you can use, you know, in your car before you go into the meeting, just taking yeah. a few long out breaths saying now you've got it all charged up and you're ready to go. Exactly. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. For more of Mark Terrell's magic, visit hypnosisdownloads.com. And I want to be perfectly clear. This is not an advertisement. This podcast never has and never will take money for advertisements. This is truly a resource that I use myself on a regular basis. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to lie to you as a podcast host and it's like, I really, really do use it. No, I, I honestly, 100%, I really do use this and I think it's great. So you can check out hypnosisdownloads.com or if you just love the sound of my voice and you're looking to experience some of the hypnotic phenomenon that we've described in this episode, visit patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual, where I have a very special hypnosis tape created just for this episode to help people experience hypnosis for the first time. And there's also other playlists, bonus content, and previous hypnosis tapes I've made that you can get once you sign up at patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual. Anyways, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you found this conversation with Mark as illuminating as it was for me. And I hope you all feel that powerful memory of that good experience coming to you now. <laughs>